Thank you all so much for having me. And uh, I want to thank Dave, first of all. Uh, Dave picked me up from the airport, and Dave has fed me, and Dave has driven me around, and Dave has put up with me. Thank you so much. Um, really, I'm a pain in the neck. Um, you know, as Dave mentioned, he and I met on, on a weekend conference a, a couple years ago. And when he called me up shortly after, I, I thought, oh, Dave was impressed enough with my recovery that he wants me to come up and share it with some more people up here in Oregon. Um, but now that I've seen that about two-thirds of you have spoken here before and there's about 483,000 years of recovery here, <laughs> what I realize is that he's just getting back at me. <laughs> I had to put up with this guy for a whole weekend. Yeah, I'll show you. <laughs> Smart guy. You come from California, you think you've got all this recovery. Anyway, I'm going to do my best. I, I am absolutely impressed with all of you for coming out at all. This kind of weather in Los Angeles locks everything down. <laughs> Seriously, there are reporters on every news channel on Stormwatch. They send these pretty little blondes out with slickers on, and they make them stand by gutters rushing with rain. So God bless you for coming out. Thank you for having me. And, and really, you know, anytime I'm involved with anything at all remotely like this, I'm so impressed with the kinds of service that gets done. And I'm so impressed when I see this kind of time. Um, but I understand it because I've been around long enough and I've, I've been active enough to know how one's life can change by sticking around here and doing what the people who have come before you have done. And thank you all, those of you that walk ahead of me, for being that kind of an example. Um, as Dave said, um, I came here about 14 years ago. My daughter was about 14 at the time. Uh, and I'm going to talk a lot about my daughter. My oldest daughter is my uh, first and, and best qualifier. Um, and, and she's a challenge to the minute. She's a challenge. I love her to pieces. Um, and and Al-Anon has made me able to continue to love her. Uh, <laughs> but when I came here, you know, she was a 14-year-old, you know, stringy-haired, acne-faced, angry ball of, of drug use and alcohol abuse. And, and uh, you know, I'm a, a pretty smart, diligent, hardworking guy, and I was trying to fix it, and it wasn't working. And um, I, I eventually got steered to Al-Anon, uh, and in fact, uh, where I got to pretty quickly after I first got to Al-Anon was what is now my home group, the Thursday night men's meeting in La Cunada, California, which, no offense to all of you from Hugs and Reflections and all the other places, is the best Al-Anon meeting on the planet. <laughs> it's, it's a men's stag, uh, routinely attended week after week by 100 to 125 men. Most of, yeah, yeah it's, it's probably the only men's stag Al-Anon meeting on the planet that has complimentary babysitting. Uh, it's, it's an amazing group of guys, and uh, I, I really you know, give them credit for, for anything that resembles recovery in my life because those guys do an amazing job, and there's just a bunch of service and a bunch of sponsorship and, and a bunch of steps being worked, and, and I'm really proud to be a member of that group. Um, but I came to that meeting when I first got here, and I was still in that stage of I've just got to figure out how to control and enjoy my daughter, and it's going to be okay. You know, I was still trying to figure out how to make her better so that I would be better. And, and even that meeting, which all these years later I realize is one with incredible recovery, wasn't telling me what I had come to hear. You know, clearly, I wasn't saying it loudly enough or clearly enough to get through to my daughter that she shouldn't be doing that stuff. Um, and so I didn't stick around. Um, she got shipped off to um, some place that her mother figured out would help her. And uh, it wasn't a rehab and it wasn't a recovery home. It was sort of this Baptist boot camp in Texas. And, uh, and some of the stories I've heard since then scare me. Uh, tell them I'll call them back. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, it was a 12-month program. And about 11 months into it, my daughter ran off barefoot into the cold Texas night. And by the time they caught her a few hundred yards later, they called up her mom and said, you can have her back. We're done. Um, and her mom said, so am I. <laughs> And so she came back to live with me. <laughs> yeah, some woman I know at the time said, you can't just let your daughter, you need to, you have to. And I said, okay, really? And I did. Um, and, and right about that time, I started dating a, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous who had also started dabbling in Al-Anon. And uh, one more time, the Al-Anon name came before me, and this time I came back and I didn't think my daughter was drinking or using, although now I look back on it and I wonder if she's ever been sober. So she may have been. But the crisis appeared to have passed it, so she's 18 or 19 by now, and she's crazy, and I'm as crazy as I ever was. 
You know, back when she was 14 and I was looking through the lint trap, trying to find the straws and digging through her backpack, trying to find the razor blades and looking for the bottles and the rolling papers and all that stuff and yelling at her and chasing her down. I was just as crazy then, even though I didn't think she was drinking or using, and even though she was old enough to make that decision for herself. And, of course, this, you know, crazy new relationship with this wonderful, exciting, sexy, alcoholic girl was, you know... I'm kind of high energy anyway. You put that kind of stuff in front of me, and I just vibrate right out of the chair. So <laughs> Al-Anon became a good idea. And this time, because I wasn't trying to figure out how to get somebody to stop drinking, I actually heard what you guys were saying. Um, and so I've been here ever since. I, I, I figured out that you guys are getting sponsors and doing steps and having home groups and being of service and reading the literature and using phone lists and all that stuff that makes it better. And so I started to do some of those things. Um, and in the years since, um, I've continued to work the steps. And, and I'm absolutely blessed with men in my life who ask me to sponsor them. And so I get to sort of watch how they do it and watch them get it wrong and watch them get it right and figure out which pieces work and, and employ some of them in my life. And one of the things that I believe really strongly in is that Al-Anon is a 12-step program. Um, you know, I've heard people say that the 12 steps are the best kept secret in Al-Anon, and I don't want that to be true on my watch. You know, we stole a perfectly good 12-step program from AA, and we better use it. <laughs> and, and, and so when I'm given this kind of time, uh, I, I like to talk about the 12 steps. Although, frankly, you guys are here for the world premiere of a new program. I just got this in an email, and I think I'm going to pitch the AA 12 steps and try these. Tell me what you think. I'll just read the first couple of them. Um, this is called Over Serious Anonymous. Yeah, we admitted that we were powerless over seriousness, that our lives had become unmanageable, came to believe that only by lightening up could we achieve our, a state of non-seriousness, made a decision to turn our constant self-criticism over to our sense of humor, and learned to lovingly and wholeheartedly laugh at ourselves. It goes through all 12. I read that and said, man, I don't need any other 12-step programs if I can master that one. But, but seriously, um, the 12 Steps uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was a little concerned. I saw how big this room was, and I saw all the time in there. I just want to make sure you listen for a minute, because I'll tell you what, by the time the 12 concepts were half over, I was gone. So I figured, man, i got to make sure I get their attention. Because if you're going to blame Dave for anything, it's not going to be that I was boring. That's all. I may suck in some other ways, but I won't be boring. Um, but here's, here's what I believe. Um, in in uh, the book From Survival to Recovery, it says at one point, um, if we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. It's a powerful and true statement. By the way, I hope you laugh. I hope you cry because I know I'll do both. Um, at any rate, if we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. That's a powerful statement, and it's a true statement. And it's a true statement in my life. It's a true statement in the lives of the men that I'm lucky enough to sponsor who are willing to work through the 12 steps. And it is important enough to me that I like to talk about it when I can um, hijack you all and have you for an hour. And so what I like to do is I like to go through the 12 steps and share a little bit of my story through the 12 steps to tell you what it's been like for me. And as I said, when I first came in here, I had no idea how the concept of the first step applied to me. You know, uh, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Well, that's not me. That's her. She's powerless over alcohol. And... Everything else that she uses, which included things that you apparently spray into bags and breathe into. I mean, I don't know, but she's clearly completely out of control. And, you know, my life may have been unmanageable. I'm not sure I really realized that completely, but certainly hers was. I didn't get that at first. And if you don't get that as an Al-Anon member, if you don't get that you're powerless over alcohol as it manifests in that person that qualifies you to be here, then you're never going to get anywhere. That's the, that's the threshold for us. And, and, you know, my favorite first step story, and I didn't know it at the time, obviously, but I reflect back on it and I realize it is, you know, Julie's whatever she is, 15 or 16 years old. Somehow I've been called to the home of a friend of hers to come get her. And it was a long time ago, I don't remember clearly, but there seemed to have been police cars and lights. And, and there was the breathing into the bag, whatever it was, right? And so I've got her. I'm in the white minivan driving her home. 
white minivan. It was a very proud moment. <laughs> and, and I'm doing what we do. You know, Alan on and on and on. I'm yapping at her. <laughs> I'm yapping at her. You can't, you shouldn't, la, la, la. Whatever it was that was so important that I say again and again. And we get to a, a stop sign or a stoplight or whatever it was. And I'm going on and on. And poof, out the door she goes. <laughs> Never occurred to me that she would have just bolted like that. And she left. And the doors open, and the red light's green, and ah, ah, ah. Powerless over the alcoholic van. She's off into the night. And my life is unmanageable because I don't know if I'm driving, chasing, following, closing the door. <laughs> there it is. That's the first step for an Al-Anon. What I've come to realize since, uh, and, and what gets shared at my Thursday night meeting, is that if you put a hula hoop on the ground and step into the middle of it, everything outside the perimeter of that hula hoop, you're, unma- you're, un- you're powerless over. You just are. Um, the way it was taught to me the first time was, put your finger on the tip of your nose. Everything on the inside of your finger, you've got some control over. Virtually everything outside of that, <laughs> not so much. But what's important for me to understand is that I am, in fact, power- powerless over many things. And so for me... Um, the fact that the first step is not literally true for us, that we're powerless over alcohol, means that I get to use this step as a way of understanding that I don't get to control what goes on around me. And what's almost as important and what starts to segue us into the second step is that so the bad news is that all of these things out here that are important to you or that scare you or that anger you or whatever, you don't get to control. But guess what? There's something here that you can. So when I came in here and I knew it was really crucial that Julie stopped drinking and using and stopped behaving in other ways, I couldn't do that. But what I can do is I, is I, can, I can manage this. I can manage what happens to me. And so that, you know, when I tell the guys that I sponsor, when I have them do a little writing on the first step, is really what we're doing when we look at our lives through the lens of the first step is we're defining the problem. You know, the alcoholic has it easy. He comes in and says, yeah, I'm powerless over alcohol. I drink and I can't stop. I drink and I get arrested. I drink and I crash cars. I drink and I get fired. And so the answer is, okay, then don't drink, knucklehead. Easy, right? Well, and so for us, it's I can't control this person or these people in my life that are important to me, right? But the answer for us, and I've heard people call Alan on the graduate program because really, (laughs) no, think about it, it truly is. Because the alcohol, think about it, the alcoholic has a relationship with something that's really sick and unhealthy for him. And so he says, I will end my relationship with that. I will no longer go to the bar. I will no longer pick up the bottle. Done. Easy, right? Because once you stop and stay stopped, no problem. But, but for us, for, for me, my bottle is my daughter. I'm obsessed with my daughter. But I don't want to just walk away from it like the alcoholic walks away from the bottle. That's my daughter. I want to have a relationship with her. She has a one-year-old daughter. I want to have a relationship with that child of mine and that child of hers. So really... Trying to figure out how to have a relationship with that child of mine would be the same thing as telling the alcoholic that he gets to have two drinks a day only. It's a, think about it, really. You know, if, if we talked about it before the meeting started, if your qualifier is a spouse and you divorce that spouse and move out of the jurisdiction, you know, maybe, but, but if you're trying to figure out how to, how to have a relationship with that qualifier in a healthy and balanced way, man. That, okay, so that's why there's 11 more steps, right? <laughs> um, so the second step tells us then that, that we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Okay, so I'm powerless over the alcoholic. I come to believe that, that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. Now, understand that when I got here, I was not a religious guy. I didn't want a God, didn't have a God, didn't need a God, didn't... I, I didn't really like religion. I won't get into it now, but I mean, it just it wasn't for me, and that's not why I was here. And so this part of it started to get a little interesting for me. came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. The way that I ultimately came to grips with that, and, and that I think is really important even for those of us who are more than happy to bring a religion we're happy with into recovery, is this... 
A power greater than myself is, well, you know, you guys tonight, 483,000 years of recovery, you know, a lot of years of, really, I counted, um, <laughs> a, a lot of experience with contending with alcoholism and contending with the people that we are because of how alcoholism has affected us. You people are a power greater than me. You know better than me. And just the very notion that I am going to humble myself enough to see if there's another way to do it is profound. It is sort of a stepping off place for me. And it doesn't, at this point at least, have to be anything like a god or anything like that. It's just, I walk into my home group and there are men with 20 and 30 years of recovery, just like you guys have here tonight. Men with smiles on their faces. Men in happy marriages with the alcoholic they were sure they were going to leave years and years and years ago. Men with children who are addicts under bridges who are doing okay. That's a power greater than me. They figured out a way to how to, of, of how to contend with it. And being restored to sanity means that you're not completely perplexed with the notion of what to do when the passenger seat is empty and the light is green. <laughs> Simple, right? So for me, that this notion of, of coming to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity is just allowing myself, giving myself permission, having the courage to see if there's another way to do it. You know, for me, as an Al-Anon guy, having control over what's going to happen next, being able to predict an outcome, being able to tell my daughter what to do, for goodness sake. You know, that stuff is really important. And so the second step tells me that I need to do something a little different, need to trust. The third step then makes me come right face-to-face with my dilemma because it says, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Using that G word that I didn't want to have to contend with and got to kind of dance around when I faced the second step, now I have to face it. Made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. Now, my experience with the whole God thing is that the 12th step says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And that's what's happened to me. As I've been here, as I've watched what happens in my life and the lives of the men around me, I realize that something's at work. And if I'm willing to throw away old definitions and old concepts and old experiences and just experience what happens here, I realize that there must be something larger and bigger and also really a lot harder to define than just a bunch of people showing up every week and working steps with sponsors. And if I'm willing to allow that thing, whatever that is, to be the God in that step, then I can be okay. And that's something that has been a process for me. When I first got here and you were first telling me about that third step, I cringed at the word God because I thought, if I have to accept that as I currently understand it, then clearly it's not going to work for me because I didn't want anything to do with it. And I had I'd done a lot of personal work with my understanding of God and religion, and I'd kind of said, yeah, not so much. I'm not interested. Thank you very much. But I don't think that's what the third step is necessarily about. And I think that um, for me then and for a lot of the men that I sponsor now, that third step can be very helpful and, and very important even if you say, well, there's no such thing or I don't want to believe in or I'm not sure. Because really the third step's about something completely different. And because you've given me so much time, I'm going to tell my favorite third step story. And it was told by an alcoholic I heard at an open AA meeting who said he heard it at a meeting in Nashville. So if I slip into a little bit of a drawl, forgive me, but it, the story really benefits from that. And, and the third step story goes like this. Imagine your life. Maybe I won't draw. Imagine your life as a trip across a lake in a rowboat. Now, those of you that have ever rowed a boat, you understand that you sit with your back to the bow facing backwards, and you row. So you're not quite sure where you're going. You can't see it. Now, the rowboat of life has a tiller. You can steer it in the back of the boat. So the, the boat of life goes like this. You row, God steers. Now, God's a pretty even-handed, fair-minded, generous guy, and he's, he'll let you steer anytime you want. But if you get up to steer, you're not going to go anywhere because... God don't row. <laughs> now, see, I'm a pretty smart guy. I realize that God don't row. So what I do, though, is...
And that's not going to make any sense on the tape, but you guys get it, right? (laughs) So the third step, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him for me, is very simply this. There are some things that I am responsible for that I need to show up for every day. Things like showing up at work, trying to have a relationship with my daughter, working out, whatever, saving money, planning for the future, a million different things, right? Brushing my teeth. And then there are certain things that I don't get to have anything to do with, like whether, you know, the company I work for continues to have clients, whether my bosses like the job I do, whether my daughter's willing to have a relationship with me, whether brushing my teeth prevents me from having cavities. There's a whole bunch of stuff. And the line isn't always clear, but a lot of times it is. There's stuff I'm responsible for, and there's stuff that's completely out of my control that I just have to let God have the tiller on. So, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, then helps me to make sense of this dilemma. If I take that step too literally, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Okay, if I wake up in the morning and I lay there and I say, okay, ready, God, go! <laughs> Expecting to be propelled out of the bed by some force, right? It's never happened. So I get up, you know, and I take a shower and I brush my teeth and I make the bed and I go to work. So for me, the third step is really about trying to be clear. You know, I thought I have a daughter and I'm going to I'm going to manage that child and my relationship with her by telling her what she needs to do. And even at the age of 14, that wasn't working, you know, and now she's 28. You're going to hear about that. Oh, my goodness. I really have no control over that. So there are certain things that I get to do and certain things. Not so much. So, like I said, the third step for me when I was having difficulty with the idea of turning something over to a God I wasn't sure I was even interested in is really more about trying to be clear about what my job is and what my job isn't. I'm going to stand up here tonight for an hour and tell you what my experience is to the best of my ability, and you're either going to get something out of it or you're not. My job is to, as clearly and as entertainingly as I can, tell you my story. And if you guys like it, awesome. Thank you. If not, then at least I know I'll have gotten something out of it because I always do. I always hear something new. It's weird. Um, I guess sometimes I'm not paying attention. But um, So that's the first three steps, um, and really the first three steps of understanding that there are some things that I don't have any control over, understanding that there's a power that can help me figure out a way of contending with it, even if it's just you guys, and then making a decision to let some of that stuff go. Man, I tell you what, those three things, I don't know what you guys call it around here, but we call it the recovery waltz, you know? You can, you can get a long way with just those three things. And, um, but there's, there's way more. Uh, it is a 12-step program. The, the next one, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I was so appalled when I first heard, heard that. Made a searching and fearless, fearless moral inventory of ourselves. She's the one that's got the problem. I'll tell you what her inventory is. I was really good at it. I, I can still do it. It's a relatively long list. Um, and boy, does she owe me some amends. Um, at any rate, so it's made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. You know, my daughter's got some challenges. Uh, the woman I was dating when I was dating her, she really had some challenges. I can take her inventory even now. Um, and anyway, um, so the searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves is important, obviously, because if we believe what we decided in the first step, that we're powerless over everyone else, then the only way anything's ever going to change is if I look at myself. Clearly, there's got to be some kind of a problem if I continue to have this kind of a relationship with this person and they continue to act that way, if for no other reason than that I keep showing up for the same thing over and over again. So um, I have, you'll learn over the course of the hour that I have opinions, and I'm not afraid to state them. One of the opinions I have is that the four-column or five, or depending on how you look at it, six-column inventory that's laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is a really good way to take an inventory. Um, and I also have an opinion that that, that thing that, that we publish, um, either the original, which is absolutely useless, and the new one, which is just frightening beyond belief, that blueprint for progress is almost completely unmanageable. <laughs> My experience only. Uh, I, I heard a, a, a speaker at a convention one time say that I was on the committee that, that originally wrote the first blueprint for progress. It was meant to be a 10-step inventory. And I went, thank you. Now I understand. Every time I looked at that book, I just went, yes, no, no, yes, 
not applicable, yes, no. I thought, there, there's no way I'm going to get anything out of an inventory that looks like that. And then when I saw they revised it and they made it into a workbook, I thought, oh, good, they fixed it. And I got about 80% into it, and I said, this thing's never going to end. It just got <laughs> deeper and deeper. So at any rate, I like the four-column inventory out, out of the, um, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've done it uh, three or four times myself, and um, the men that are willing to let me sponsor them have done it a bunch, and I've seen it done on computers. I've seen it done longhand. Um, but I think it really works. And, and one of the reasons I think it really works is because we get to write down the people that we're hurt by or, or angry with or have resentments towards, or and we just get to write names. Yeah, and her. Oh, I'm going to put her on there and him. And, and we, you know, we, with, no, with no thought towards what's going to happen in the other columns. And then, and then I, you know, I tell my guys, you need to work down and then write out why you think that. I had a guy, God bless him, he wrote three spiral notebooks. Three. This guy remembers first and last names all the way back to sixth grade. <laughs> Alan Jones, hilarious. And, and he still has incidents come up anyway. I, after about midway through the second notebook, I said, okay, so, aren't we going to finish? Well, I think we're pretty clear now, Stacey. There's the guys that picked on you and the girls that ignored you. And the... <laughs> At any rate. Um, so the nice thing about the four-column inventory uh, is that it eventually gets us around to what our part in these relationships is. So uh, it's easy for me to put my daughter on this inventory and say, you know, she... She gets arrested. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> right? She takes advantage of me. She's inconsiderate of others. She, whatever it is, you know. Um, all of those things. But ultimately, what I need to do is get to, in that last column, what my part in that is. You know, and, and so it would go like this. You know, Julie would say something like, oh, I really want to go to the movies, but I don't have a ride. And my car keys would be in my hand. Oh, I really want to go to the mall, but I'm broke. And my wallet would be pulled out. And so what I had to realize was that uh, my part in that stuff was that somehow, you know, her having that issue became my problem, you know. And so whether you want to control, call it control issues or you want to call it me not minding my own business, there was how it was my part. And, and so and when we talk about the amends part of that, I'll tell you how I manage that. But really what I find out in my inventory is that I'm a bully, I'm a busybody, I'm a coward, I'm a liar, I'm a, there are all kinds of interesting things that I do. And here I am thinking that I'm the sort of the hopeless victim of other people's bad behavior. And yet I'm muddling about getting in, in the way. And so that inventory is really meant for me to figure out where it is that my behavior, my relationship with these people needs to change. Now, the next step talks about, says, uh, admit it to God, to ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. And, and to me, that is especially for Al-Anon's. Uh, I don't know what it's like. I've never done a fifth step with a woman. But for Al-Anon men, this is really an interesting piece because, let's face it, first of all, you know, in our culture, we've got sort of the whole John Wayne thing, right? You know? <laughs> right? I'll fix it. You know, and we never ask for directions, right? Okay. So then add a little pinch of Alan onto that, and you can imagine what kind of an interesting stew you get, you know. So we think that, first of all, it's our fault. We think it's our responsibility. And, and so I spend a, a fair amount of time when I'm listening to Fifth Steps of the men that I sponsor saying, wait, wait, back up a second. How is that anything to do with you? We take on responsibility over and over again for stuff that's not our fault. I do it all the time. Oh, I'm so sorry. Wait a second. You okay? Um, and so part of, of what we have to do as we sit in this inventory process is to take out the parts that aren't our fault. It's part of the whole what are you powerless over thing in a way. You know, so the fact that I divorced Julie's mother when she was very, very young makes me feel like somehow it's my fault. Oh, she's an alcoholic because she comes from a broken home. Perhaps. Maybe it's because alcohol is genetic disease and it's all over her family, you know, both sides. Or maybe it's just whatever. You know, it doesn't necessarily have a thing to do with me, but I want to take responsibility for it, which is part of the reason why I wanted to fix it so much and why I still want to manage her behavior and her affairs because I think it's my fault. And so part of, of the reason that 
the fifth step is so necessary that we say some of this stuff out loud is that we need to get some clarity on it. And at the other end of the spectrum, what I also find to be true is, is that sometimes we'll say, well, here's what happened, and have no idea of, of what a big deal it is that... So I had a call today from one of my sponsees, and he said, well, so here's the deal. My three-year-old daughter is getting ready to go to pre-K, and we're going to change schools. Now, when my kids went to school, you went to preschool and kinder anyway, but that's a whole other rant. Um, so, so he wants to get his wife to ask the teacher about whether his child is ready to change schools. And he said, I asked her if she would ask the teacher about changing schools. And rather than saying, okay, she gave me some kind of resistance and didn't think that that was going to work out. <laughs> he couldn't figure out where his part in it was. I asked her. I didn't tell her. I said, well, but maybe she wants to be part of the decision about whether your kid is ready for that yet. Maybe she wants to actually participate in a dialogue with you. Oh, do you think? Um, and, and so that's sort of part of what the fifth step's about, is, is making sure that in the one instance we don't take responsibility for stuff that's not ours, and in the other instance we're clear about where our part is. You know, and, and I do, when, when I do a fifth step, I do it with a sponsor I've been working with for years, and he's heard these stories, and he knows the context. He's heard me give fifth steps. So he knows the story, and, and he'll tell me in no uncertain terms. <laughs> he'll volunteer it sometime. Um, oh, Josiah, you might want to look at that. Um, and, and so the fifth step process is really, I, I think, a very important one. The other thing about it for me, in some ways, the fifth step idea of you know, admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs is why what we do is so magical. You know, it's, it's, think about it. Like I said, John Wayne, right? I can do it. Um, I, I go every Thursday night to a room full of guys who are willing to admit that they don't know how to do it, who are willing to admit that some woman, typically, has brought him to his knees and he has no idea what to do. Is seriously, and, and you know, and it's really profound to have some, you know, I, I'll tell you what, when I first came to this Thursday night meeting, it was about 35 or 40 guys, and they all looked like they big, burly, bearded guys with voices down here, you know, and they all crossed their arms and looked like lumberjacks, and they scared the crap out of me. <laughs> you know, I, here I am going, man, I can't manage my 14-year-old, and I wasn't going to admit that to guys like that. I shot a bear last weekend. You know, and, and literally, there was a whole wall of them on one side of the room where they would lean their chairs back against the wall and they would all sit with their arms crossed. And they just, and you know, I thought it was me just being a wuss, but I have heard that story told over and over and over in the years since. Yeah, I walked into this room, I was scared to death of you guys. Um, so, this fifth step idea of admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs, just to tell you that I'm scared to death and to have you say it too is profound. Maybe not so much for you women who will actually go in pairs to the bathroom together and talk. <laughs> but for guys, how's it going? You know, I, <laughs> it's, it's a big deal. It, it really is a big deal. There was a guy who was at my home group at the beginning. Big, tall, good-looking construction worker baseball player guy. And he would say, I'm a liar and a coward. And I was shocked, you know. I mean, this guy, matinee idol, good looks, athlete guy, saying he was a coward. And I thought, how can he, first of all, how could he be a coward? But second of all, how can he give voice to what is really one of my deepest fears? A, that I'm a coward, and B, that you're going to know. And yet he did that. And to me, that's what this fifth step thing is all about. Admitted the exact nature of our wrongs. It's that thing that, you know, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob did in that coach house, Mother's Day 1935, where Bill said, I'm a hope-to-die alcoholic, and here's what I do and how I drink and the messes I create. And Dr. Bob said, wow, really? That's what I do. And, you know, that was the seed that gave birth to AA, which is what gave birth to Al-Anon. And, and so in, in many ways, to me, it's the most magical, mysterious, important part of what we do is giving voice to this stuff, taking away the shame. Isn't it interesting that we're not the ones who are drinking and making the messes, yet we're the ones that carry the shame? And that fifth step thing is where I tell you that. And release so much of the power that this disease has over us.
And as I said, I get to, I get to sponsor a lot of guys and, and, you know, a fair handful of whom are willing and have the courage and the tenacity to do the fourth step. And they'll sit on the deck in my backyard and share those things with me. And I consider it to be really an honor and a privilege. And it gives me a lot of insight into how this disease works. So fifth step's a big deal. Unfortunately, we're not even halfway through, right? Um, and it's interesting to watch with the men that I sponsor, what happens, you know, a lot of guys will do the first three steps and, and you get a lot of recovery out of that. Like I said, you know, just the idea that it's not something I necessarily can or have to control is a big deal. Um, but then doing that inventory and then having some, some clarity about what are the things that I do that aren't healthy? And then what are the things behind them that I believe that drive me to act that way? Like I said, a lot of it for me is the shame. A lot of it is the cowardice. A lot of it is this belief in myself that I'm somehow not good enough, that it's my fault, that I'm not worthy of love. And that drives a lot of those controlling behaviors and the bullying and the doormat behavior and all the other things that I do. But then we need to do something about it. Now that we know it, we need to do something about it. Um, You know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks a lot about knowing that you're an alcoholic and knowing that you shouldn't take any more drinks is not nearly enough. And in the context of the big book, um, the notion is that you need to do something about that. It's a program of action. And so once we get to this point where we've gotten an idea of what we're about, what our character defects are, what the bad behavior is, and maybe a little bit about what our assets are and what are good about us, then we need to do something with it. And so the steps that follow are what we do. Um, The sixth step and the seventh step um, are sort of preparation steps, in my opinion. Um, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Sixth step. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Um, the sixth and seventh steps, for those of you that know the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, take about three lines, one quick little paragraph. Um, and then when Bill, about 15 years later, wrote the 12 and 12, they each get a chapter. Um, Bill overthinks the steps. That's the subtitle of that book. Um, Although it's interesting, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And then Bill says, well, I didn't really mean it. <laughs> you just, it's what you want to aim for. It's so funny. I, I, um, I have a meeting every Wednesday night of the men that I sponsor at my house. And right now we're going through the AA 12 and 12. At, uh, we were sort of laughing at that just the other night, in fact. <laughs> and one of the guys said, well, so what, you're going to take it all back? Because really Bill says, oh, it's only the first step that you have to work with, 100% perfection. So we're going to give you a pass on all the 11 because I said entirely and all in the sixth. (laughs) But really, I mean, it is a big deal and it is important. I make fun of it, but it's an important step because what it tells me is that I've identified the behaviors that I engage in, for instance, with my daughter. She's the best and, and most fun example for me. You know, the things that I do, like I said, I pull out the car keys because, you know, she's fussing over the fact that she can't get somewhere. And the sixth step says, I am willing not to do that. And the implications of that are pretty great. You know, in in an instance as simple and trivial as she wants to go somewhere and can't get there, I have to be willing to sort of sit in her fussing and discomfort and whatever other noises she's going to make while she can't get where she wants to go. You know, and I fix stuff, right? I, I, I don't know about you women. Maybe there's a mom thing that's a lot like what men do, but men fix things. And when we hear a a daughter say she can't get somewhere and have some opinion about it, we want to fix that. So, you know, the sixth step says, I'm going to be willing not to do that. Or whatever other controlling or doormat or bullying or lying or cowardice behaviors I engage in, I've got to be willing not to do that. And there are implications from that. And if I'm not ready to do that, then I'm not going to be ready to do the eighth and ninth steps. Seventh step now comes along gives me a little bit of a break. It says, okay, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings, meaning reminding us that this is a spiritual program and that we're not in it alone. And if you're, you know, if you're working with a God that works for you, it means that you're going to ask that for help. If you're still agnostic or atheistic, it means that, guess what? You're not alone. You're going to go to your home group, to your sponsor, to the men that you call on the phone list, to the literature, to your journal, to whatever else it is. <clears throat> Thank you, pardon. And get some help. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Um, we do a step study at my home group once a month, and uh, last July we were talking about the seventh step. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. My sponsor stood up and said, I heard my wife's sponsor, his wife is long time sober in AA, say this about the seventh step. A woman came and asked her, when will my shortcomings be removed? I want God to remove my shortcomings. And the woman's sponsor said, as soon as you stop doing them. 
Which is a much more entertaining way of saying what I tell my guys, which is look at the sixth and seventh steps closely, please. Nowhere in there does it say that anything's actually taken away. Right? If it did, it would be a seven-step program. (laughs) Six and seven steps are preparation steps so that we're ready to do the eighth and ninth steps. Uh, A woman I know, long time sober in AA, likes to say that the six and seven steps are like the second and third steps with information (laughs) about ourselves. So now, now, the eighth and ninth steps. Maybe my favorite part. Well, I said that about the fifth step. Okay, I like a lot of it. But... Um, the eighth step, you know, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And the ninth step, made direct amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And, um, you know, the, um, the notion of amends, especially if you read some of the old AA literature, you know, you read Bob Smith's story. Bob, you know, got sober and about a minute and a half later went all around Akron and told everybody, I'm an alcoholic, oh my God, I'm sober, I'm so sorry, I operated on you while, you, while I was drunk. <laughs> He was a proctologist. Um, But at any rate, so the notion that I had before I actually got to these steps and did the work was that amends meant you went around and said you were sorry for being horrible and paying people back. And it's that classic sort of the alcoholic telling his family that he wasn't going to, you know, be a bad guy anymore. And and so I had this idea that... I had a list of people from my inventory and then I was going to go around and make apologies. I'm sorry, right? Yeah. The cheapest words in my vocabulary are, I'm sorry. Yeah, I take on responsibility for way too much. The worst thing about it for me is that I will apologize at the drop of a hat, but then I'll go out and do it again. So, so the important thing for me to understand is that the amends may involve an apology, but it's really more about changing behavior. Amend. When you amend the Constitution, you change it. Amend means to change for the better. And so if we, we're really mindful about what the, <laughs> the sort of pivotal word is in these two steps, then we're going to understand that this isn't just about going around to people that you may have been a jerk to and saying, I'm sorry, I was a jerk to you. And one of my favorite examples in the amend situation is, and, and by the way, some of you may have heard, I think it may happen more in AA than it does here, but some people will say, I, I wrote down my inventory and I did my fifth step with my sponsor and my sponsor had me burn my inventory. Mm, please don't burn your inventory. That's where your eight-step list starts, is the list of names. You really don't want to start from scratch. When I do these lists, by the way, I just do this. I start from the very beginning. Mom, dad, brother, sister. I just really, I, I put them all down, and if there's anybody that I don't have a resentment against, they get tossed out. I don't toss out a lot of names. I just don't. Anyway, so the immense thing is you're going to go through and figure out all those people who are in your inventory that, that triggered some kind of bad behavior, and you do you owe some kind of amends. Do you want to change your relationship with them? So here's one way that it works. I go to my daughter and I say, you know what, Julie, I'm really sorry because one of the things that I've done with you for years and years is whenever you express some kind of an issue, whether it's you don't have money, you can't get a ride somewhere, whatever it is, I volunteer to provide you help. And that's not necessarily healthy for either of us. I know sometimes I'm not necessarily happy about the fact that I gave you money that I didn't want to part with so that you could go to the mall. So what I'm going to do is in order to provide you with the dignity of of having whatever it is that you need to have and and expressing whatever it is you need to express, I am going to wait for you to ask for that help before I offer it. And I could tell by the look on her face that she kind of knew the jig was up. (laughs) Damn. Because she knew that all she sort of had to do was float a notion out there and never really take responsibility for asking for it. It takes a lot of the guilt away from it. Right? So I told her, I'm going to have you ask me now so that you, know, you and I can have a more appropriate, responsible adult relationship. I don't do it all the time. I don't do it perfectly. I'm still her daddy, and I always will be. And there's going to be a soft spot in me and in my wallet probably forever. <laughs> but here's, here's what happens. Um, over the last year or so, I've started taking my, my kids out to dinner and spending time with them. 
And, um, and they really like, you know, being taken out to a nice steak dinner and, and chatting. And they'll have a, a glass of wine or, and they'll talk and tell me what's going on. It's been great. So about six months ago, we're out to dinner. And Julie's got this brand new little baby with a boy that she knew for that long before all that went down. And, and, and so she starts saying, oh, my God. My relationship is such a mess. I can't believe it, Sean, and I never talk. And she starts going on and on about how terrible things are. And, of course, I immediately go to single mother, no means of support, living in my back bedroom, 40 years old, with a teenage kid, and, you know, and my life has completely come untracked. But because I've been around here for a minute, I know enough to keep my mouth shut and to just sit in whatever it is that I'm creating in my head and in my gut, just to sit in it. You know, my, th- these aren't official Al-Anon slogans, and I'm willing to sell them to the program for the right price. <laughs> Shut your mouth. Mind your own business. It saves me a lot of time. So she says this, I cringe and I say nothing, right? That's consistent with the amends I made to her. You don't ask me for something, I am not going to volunteer anything. When she says things like, I'm broke, when she says things like, I want this and I can't have it, I can't get there, whatever it is, sometimes she's just telling me what's happening in her life. (gasps) Sometimes she's just sharing her experience with me. Sometimes she doesn't necessarily want or need me to fix it. What? So, So that was the experience. She told me what was going on in her life. And of course, God bless her. I mean, she's an alcoholic to the core, so you can imagine... The drama. I wonder where she gets that. I'm pretty sure it's her mother. So we go out to dinner a month later. And what happens? Oh, Sean is so wonderful. I've never been closer with a person. So glad I kept my mouth shut. I just, I sat back and laughed at myself because of how uncomfortable I'd been during the first conversation. And how much I wanted to, I don't know, do something, say something, help somehow. So that's, to me, that's one great way to talk about making a direct amends to my kid. Stop having to fix it. Stop having to somehow prevent her from having her life and her feelings and her experiences just because you're uncomfortable with it. If I could just learn to sit in the discomfort of my own feelings about the experience you're having, half of my Al-Anon dilemmas would go away, period. It's just that simple. And that's a big part of the amends. Now, another part of the amends for me that I have to confess is is really important to me. Um, It's it's a little disconcerting to share it in public in a mixed meeting, but I'm going to because I think it's really important. And that is, you know, I've been married twice, and I haven't necessarily complied literally with the vows. Put it that way. And so by the time I had done my inventory, and by the time I was clear about some of the amends that, you know, needed to be made, I was no longer married to either of those women. And the idea of making a direct amends to them, you know, where I go and apologize and say, I did this and that while I was married to you, and I'm really sorry. Oh, and I did it more than once. You know, probably not the best thing. And that's where the language in the ninth step is important. that says, except when to do so would injure them or others. You know, admitting those shortcomings and my failure to comply with those vows in that way probably wouldn't have helped them a bit, especially since, you know, the relationship's long since over. And so I don't get to make myself better. I don't get to sort of forward my recovery at their expense. But what I do get to do, and what happened to me at the time was, when I was in the process of making those amends, I was in a relationship with another person. So guess what I got to do in that relationship? I get to make a decision to behave appropriately with her and with every other woman out there on the planet, based on what I've decided is necessary for me as a result of the inventory and amends work I'm doing. So it's not a direct amends to the ex-wife, but it is a direct amends because it's how I, it's me changing my behavior. Guess what? The woman I was in a relationship with at that time really liked the fact that I'd made a decision that I was going to be faithful and comply with the commitment that I'd made. But I didn't do it for her. One of the reasons that I was able to be that guy is because I realized I was doing it for me. And that's what this amends work is really all about. 
If I walk around behaving in ways that are unhealthy for me and make me unhappy because of the person that I am, because of how I believe myself to be, because of what I believe about the way I fit into the world, and then I go out there and I act consistent with that, what I do is I perpetuate my problem. So I think I'm unworthy of love. So I think I'm a bad guy. And then I go out and I'm unfaithful in a relationship. All I'm doing is confirming a belief that I started with. I'm never going to be able to dig myself out of that hole. I'm never really going to be able to get traction on this notion of of changing how I behave and what I believe about myself and having a healthier relationship with the alcoholic and all of the rest of you if I don't stop that behavior. So I'm faithful in that relationship because I want to be able to feel good about the man that I am as a man in a relationship. And that's how that stuff works. And so this amends stuff benefits other people. You know, my daughter has a sounding board. The woman I'm in a relationship with can trust me. But it's really all about me. That's what this amends stuff is about. It's about me, by my actions, starting to get at the beliefs that are underneath them that cause me to behave that way. You you hear people talking about acting as if. You hear about contrary action. That's exactly what this stuff is. Right? So in my inventories, I've got former employers on there. And part of the reason former employers are on there is because I kept getting fired from jobs. How could they do that to me? Well, because I wasn't a very good employee. And so I try. <laughs> this is a great story. I, for me, it was anyway. You may not be entertained by it. But I go to a former employee, employer, and we sit down, we chat, house business. And I tell him, boy, you know, I just wanted to let you know that, that I'm I'm really sorry about some of the things that I did when I was working for you, and I'm really sorry that you got to a place where you had to let me go, and I just want you to know that I'm really committed to being a different guy today. I'm a much harder worker. I'm a better guy. And he just gave me that Scooby-Doo look. He cranked his head over to the side. It was years and years ago. He didn't remember any of that stuff. And so really, you know, it's not necessarily about going back to the guy and saying, gee, I'm really sorry I was that guy. For me, it's about showing up at the job I have today. And committing myself to being a dedicated, hard, loyal, conscientious worker. And I don't just do it because I want my employer to like me. I do it because I want to like me. I want to walk away from that job at the end of the day feeling good about the effort that I've put forth. And, of course, amazing things happen when you start to behave in this way. You know, the girlfriend trusts you, the employer likes you, the daughter will confide in you. It's incredible how people change when you start doing this stuff. It's amazing. It's uncanny. So at any rate, that's what, to me, that's what the, this amend stuff is about. It's all about me changing the way that I contend with you. My daughter is always going to be my daughter. Always. I'll tell you a story in a minute about that. Um, but I don't necessarily have to relate to her the same way. And if I can figure out the places where I'm having an unhealthy relationship with her and start to do something about that, then things can get better. They may not be the way I want them to be, but they can get better. So, the tenth step. Continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Really, to me, this step says, I'll tell you what, you're getting such good results out of doing this inventory through a men's process, the four through nine thing. That works so good, you should keep doing it. Continue to take personal inventory. You hear people say it's the only part of the steps that gets repeated. This inventory stuff, constantly looking at your behavior and saying, is this the guy I want to be? Um, I was asked to do um, I was asked to do a reading at my home group. It was um, more about alcoholism. One of those readings that's sort of like a Russian novel. It goes on and on and on and on. And so I hate it. I think it takes too long. And I think it takes up too much of the meeting. And so I clowned around through it. And I was having fun, but I realized that not necessarily everybody was, and some people might actually want to hear the reading. So by the time I got done with it, I thought, oh, that probably wasn't good. And so I emailed my sponsor, and I said, I think that that probably wasn't the right thing to do, and I think that maybe the right amends to that one is to sit, first of all, politely through that reading from now on, and second of all, if I'm asked to read it again, to read it straight. That's a little bit of a tenth step. And, you know, the tenth step to me means, in some instances, checking my behavior now, to see if it's what I want to do. And in some instances, it's about sitting down and making a decision to go back and do the fourth step all over again. Um, I've got a fourth step that I'm almost done with that I started working on about a year ago because that sober alcoholic girl left me. Oh! 
But one of the things that I know for sure and for certain is that anytime there's a situation like that, when I get to the fourth column on that girl, there is going to be a part that's mine. And I want to know what it is because I don't want to go out there and repeat that behavior. You know, I, I think really that, that one of the worst things that we have to contend with is that we keep doing the same thing over and over again. You guys have heard that definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. How many times are you going to yell at that kid? Apparently ad nauseum, ad infinitum. Uh, you know, unless we start doing things differently. So the 10th step, I'm constantly looking at my behavior. One of the things that used to really baffle me when I was first around here is, how is it that you people with the 20-some and the 30-some years are still here? <sighs> I'd be really done with it by then. But what I realize is that, you know, it's a work in progress. And it keeps getting better. I'm not, I'm not stopping anytime soon. My life gets better. And, I, and I'm constantly, constantly presented with new challenges on where my behavior isn't right and where it can be improved. And so that's a little bit about what this 10th step is to me. It's keep doing it. Um, and, you know, be willing to look at your behavior and be willing to look at your beliefs. Um, my sponsor knows. Uh, the 11th step, sought through parameditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. Praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. You can imagine how much fun that was for me coming in here not wanting, not having, not needing a God. Um, and it's been a process for me. I, I started out, you know, holding hands at the end of the meeting, saying the prayer just because everybody did. Um, I eventually got to the place where I was willing to do a serenity prayer on my own. And now I don't know what I would do without things like the third step prayer. Um, I'm not a big fan of the holidays, and I'll bet since about December 23rd, I've said the third step prayer about 5,000 times. Just, it, and it doesn't even matter. My, my sponsor, who's been around Al-Anon for 25 years or so, claims he's an agnostic. He says, but I pray, just in case something is listening. <laughs> and, and really, you know, sometimes it's just important for us to say the stuff out loud. Now, you can, meditation, hmm, sitting quietly, listening for the right voice of, you can imagine what sitting quietly for me must be like, right? <laughs> when I got to this step, I said, wow, I'm going to need help. So I took tranquilizers. No, um, <laughs> I, um, I, I, I went to a place in L.A. that gives lessons, and I, I took meditation lessons. And for a little while, I was meditating for, you know, long periods of time. And, um, and I still have a practice in the morning. I get up and I pray and I meditate. It, it may not be for long, but I do try to sit quietly and just my head goes. If you think I talk fast, you should see what it's like in here. And so just the idea that I'm going to sit quietly and not have to know what's going on, not have to manage, not have to plan, not have to control, not have to talk, not have to have it going. Just stop for a second. Just stop for a second. Just being okay with a little bit of silence or not. Sometimes I sit to meditate and my head just goes. All right. But the idea is for me, prayer and meditation and God's will for us, you know, and, and the idea of God's will for us, whether you're looking at the third step or the 11th step is an interesting challenge. What is God's will for me? Where is he going to steer that boat? And, and the thing about it for me is that I don't necessarily know. We were talking a minute before the meeting, you know, the, the sober alcoholic girl, leaves me abruptly a little over a year ago. You and I want different things. I need to end this. What? We've been together for eight years. I just put a ring on your finger. Anyway, she didn't really invite discussion with a statement like that. You and I want different things. I need to end this. Okay. All right. And, and so, um, you know, one of the things that I realized, I, and by the way, I was able to bring a lot of recovery tools to the aftermath of that. My father had died just a few months before that. I was already grieving, and I was a, a hot mess at that point. And so, you know, I was talking to my sponsor. I was going to more meetings. I did a recovery group for, for men in, you know, the, the recovery from relationships. I went to a therapist. All these things, because I've seen what you all do when crisis hits. And it's not to run around like your hair's on fire and your butt's falling off. It's to employ some tools, and I did those things. And, you know, one of the things that I was pretty sure was that I missed the relationship as much as maybe more than I missed that girl. I liked the relationship. I knew what was going to happen on Friday night and with whom, and I knew how I was supposed to act. I went to stag meetings instead of mixed meetings. I mean, there was a nice set of rules, and it was very predictable, and I knew what to do. 
So I thought to myself, well, I'll do some recovery work and then I'll go out and get in another relationship. I mean, I'm good at that. I meet you, you like me, I take you hostage. Right? What does an Al-Anon bring to the second date? A U-Haul. Apparently, God's will for me is something different because what I've, what I've been experiencing in a year plus now is dating. I, first of all, I'm way too old for that. Um, second of all, I have no idea what that's like, really. I mean, I get into relationships and it's on. And, and so I have no idea. And really, part of the idea about it being God's will and not mine is that I don't necessarily know what that means. And I'll tell you what, one of the hardest things in the world for me is to not know how it's going to come out. And, and that is a profound challenge for a guy like me who comes in here not wanting, not having a God, not necessarily believing in that, and not necessarily believing that it's going to be okay. Because he's not necessarily sure that he deserves for it to be okay. So, the idea of the 11th step to sit in prayer and meditation and ask for God's will for me isn't necessarily to ask for an answer. Isn't necessarily to ask to know right now what God's will is, but to allow me to be the guy who does the work to get there. I'm showing up in a dating life right now, whatever in the world that means for a guy who's over 50. <laughs> really? Um, so <laughs> My kids hate it when I do that. Oh, God, old white man dancing. Um, but I show up. I have no idea what it's going to turn out like. And, and so far, it's been okay. You know, I, I took a job almost three years ago. I left a big international company with retirement benefits in a job that was okay to go to a place that hadn't yet started business. They hadn't opened their doors. And I did a lot of writing and praying and talking to sponsors and figuring it out. And here we are, almost three years into it, and it's the best damn thing I've ever done. I've never had more fun at work. Things have never been better. And although there was sort of a mess this week that was my fault and I got yelled at for it, I know it's going to be okay. I don't know what's going to happen because the company has a five-year contract with one client that's about to expire in two years. But it's okay. I show up. And one of the things I've been taught here is that I can ask for God's will, I can do the footwork, and then I can surrender the results. That's what I have to do with my alcoholic. That's what I have had to do with my alcoholic. You know, the 12th step then says, um, having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. And I, I swear to you, I really have. My life is completely different. I don't necessarily have to control things as much as I did. I don't necessarily believe that the sky is about to fall. Having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. We tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, I'm lucky. I get, to, I get to carry the message to others this way, which I love to do, as you can tell. I get to carry the message to others by sponsoring them, which I love to do. But the practicing of these principles in all our affairs is an interesting one. Um, my, my daughter, who, you know, 28 years old, living with that boyfriend, she has the baby, she has the support of the boyfriend's family, and instead of living right near me, she lives a little bit further away. So I decide, despite the fact that I hate the winter solstice holiday, that I'm going to have a little thing at my house on the 25th. And I tell my kids and my sister, 6 o'clock, we'll have dessert, we'll have coffee. Here I am, a little contrary action, right? Going to have the family over for that holiday that I don't really like. And so about 8.30 on the morning of the 25th, I get a text message from that wonderful child of mine. Oh, dinner at Sean's family's house starts at 6. Can I be there at 7.30? So, practicing these principles in all my affairs, my first response is to not. Because my first response wasn't going to be very nice. So I just sat on it for a couple of hours. And I sent a response that said something like, that'll be fine. Knowing that 7.30 probably meant 9. Knowing that I had a plane to catch the next morning at 7 o'clock to go to, go to Las Vegas. God bless. And, and, and you know, knowing that, that I was going to sit and be unhappy about it. Because I'm tight. 
Um, and, and I thought, okay, well, I'll tell you what. The rest of the people will show up. We'll do our deal for as long as we do it. And when Julie gets there, it'll be fine. Or she won't get there and I'll say, I'm washing dishes and shutting down shop. Don't come. She showed up right at 730. How about that? As I said, you know, my dad died about a year and a half ago. And, and he and my mom had been married for 60 years. And um, he died very suddenly. He had an aneurysm and poof, gone. My mother is alone for the first time since she was 21 years old. And so I made a commitment then that I was going to call her every day. She lives in the middle of BFE nowhere in the middle of the state of New York with a cornfield next door. And, you know, she and my dad weren't social people. They, they were in this relationship where they revolved around each other, and she is going to be alone. And one of the things that you guys have taught me is that we're here for each other and we show up no matter what. And no matter whether you like the person or don't, we'll love you in a special way, right? We're going to be here for each other. It's what we do. I've called my mother every day since my dad died. I can count the times I haven't called her on the fingers of one hand. And I knew that I was going to have to grit my teeth because I'll tell you what, the woman installed the buttons and she knows how to push them. What I didn't talk about tonight is, the, is that my father's father was the original alcoholic. He's my, my true qualifier. And, and my father was oh, an untreated Al-Anon to his soul. And I think every proud Al-Anon moment I've ever had, I could probably attribute to him. God bless him. And, and so, you know, obviously he married someone that fit him perfectly. She's not an alcoholic, but boy, you know, she plays one on TV. And... <laughs> And, and so, so I've shown up, you know, and I've been of service. But here's the best part. And those of you that do service understand this. Although I'm sure I've helped her. And she tells me that all the time. Thank you so much. You listen to me. You're the most patient person in the world. <laughs> the most patient in the I've got none. I live in L.A. I don't have time. Anyway, she tells me I'm patient. And she thanks me. But really, what's happened is that I have a whole new relationship with her. She doesn't push my buttons nearly as much. And what she's taught me is courage and perseverance. What she's taught me is that no matter what happens, life goes on. I've learned so much from her and I've gotten so much from her. And that's because you guys taught me to practice these principles in all my affairs. That's because you guys taught me that we're here for each other no matter what. Thank you so much for listening. Appreciate it.